Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by the iconic Susie Quattro. Susie and her trademark leather jumpsuit, big bass guitar and a back catalogue of classic hits is a rock icon. We discuss her formative years, discovering Elvis and performing with her sisters in the band The Pleasure Seekers, who would evolve into the group Cradle, where Susie was spotted performing by the producer Mickey Most, who encouraged Susie to move to the UK from her native Detroit. The 1973 single, Can the Can, propelled Susie to number one in the UK and Australia. Global chart toppers and concerts would follow, and after almost 60 years in music, Susie is still rocking concert venues and has just released her latest album, Face to Face, which is a collaboration with KT Tunstall. Let Christy Taker are proud to bring you Susie Quattro. If you enjoy our show, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, it gives me great pleasure to say this. Susie Quattro, the legendary Susie Quattro. Welcome to Let Christy Take a Podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Susie, can I ask you about growing up in Detroit? What was that like? Oh, my God. that That, that is a big question. Um, Detroit is my heart, obviously. I'm born and raised there. And it's a very brilliant city to grow up in because you've got your your opposites, rich, poor, black, white. You know, it's just it's just brilliant. And the music reflects that when you go if you go through all the names, uh, the rock and roll bands and the Motown bands, such a huge list of talented people. I always say we if you're from Detroit, your foot goes on the gas and it's done on the gas. There is no brake pedal. You're just on the gas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Susie, I'm going to ask you what your surname Quattro. I always thought it was a stage name, but uh, apparently it's not. You're not the first person to have asked me that. Um, the I'll give you the brief history. My my I, my mother's Hungarian. My father's Italian. Obviously, the name. Um, my grandfather's name was Mikhail Quattroki, and he immigrated at the age of nine to the states. And when he got to Elisan, and they just did a chop, chopped off half his name, like they did with a lot of people. And he entered America as Michael Quattro. So then my dad was Art Quattro, and I'm Susie Quattro. And it's a great name. It sounds like a stage name, doesn't it? Everybody thinks it's a stage name, but it is the name I was born with. Fantastic. Uh, did your family's musical background have an influence on your career choice? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there was even a choice, to tell you the truth. We were five kids. My dad was a musician. Um, I grew up in the profession. We did family shows from the time I was seven. So really, there, there was no choice. I was just in the business. 
is there or can you remember if there was a pivotal moment in your life that made you think music was going to be your goal? Many pivotal moments. Um, the most important one, I guess, is age five and a half and watching uh, Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show doing Don't Be Cruel. My oldest sister, by nine years, so that's 14 and a half, she was screaming. And I'm thinking, why are you screaming? Because I didn't understand. Then I went back to the TV and I went, I always remember this moment, I went into the TV, like drawn in and a little light bulb, five and a half years old, little light bulb. And I thought, I'm going to do that. Wow. Actually, uh, throughout your career, did your paths ever cross with Elvis? He invited me to see him um, in 1974. He called me up at the hotel in Memphis and knew I was in town. And he, as his people got on the phone first, of course, and then he got on. And he said, um, I've heard your version of All Shook Up, which was just entering the lower ends of the USA charts. And I was on tour there. And he said, I think your version is the best since my own. And um, I'd like to invite you to Graceland while you're here. And my actual words were, I'm very busy. <laughs> oh, God. Only, only because I wasn't ready yet. Wasn't scared. Wasn't ready. I think I was trying to equalize it a little bit more, you know. But but it's it's safe to say he has been on my shoulder my entire career. My you, either way, it's an amazing story to tell. It is. Yeah, of course. It is. To me going, yeah. I'm very busy. I mean, people go, oh. <laughs> going back to your, your youth, other than the bongos, do you remember why you picked the bass guitar as your weapon of choice? Yes, because we all grew up very musically. We all, I, I can't even brag about it. Um, all of uh, us four girls and my brother, we all play Three or four instruments, easy, not a big deal. We just do. We're multi-interested, all of us. So um, my first was bongo drums. I was seven years old, and I asked my dad to give me a pair of that, and he did the best you can buy. Then I studied classical piano. Then I studied percussion. So I read and write both instruments. Then at 14, we started um, the all-girl band, The Pleasure Seekers, me and three of my sisters and two other girls, and everybody chose an instrument and I didn't speak up quick enough, which is very unusual for me. And I said, Hey, hello, you know, around the phones. I said, hello, what am I going to play? And my elder sister, Patty, she said, you're playing bass. Now me already being, this is the funny thing. I was already a percussionist and a keyboard player. Keyboard is also a percussive instrument. So my dad gave me, and, and this makes musicians, they want to shoot me. My first bass was a 1957 Fender Precision. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so I was given a Rolls Royce to learn. And when I picked that up, my dad said, here you go. He had he had the bass. And I picked it up and I put it on. I can't explain it. It was like I'd come home. Everything was right. It felt right. It, it swung right. It played right. And a lot of people that know me for many years now, they say to me, you look like you were born with a bass in your hands. It is a very natural look, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just is. So that was going to be my, I played different things on stage. I did a few. Y'all, wait a minute. Sorry. I, I hung it up. Wait. Hello, I'm on the phone. I'm doing an interview. Call you back. Don't worry, Susie. Air pro Air producer Mark I, I can, can edit all him. of it. It doesn't matter. I can tell him and he still fucking calls. 
Uh, so what was I on about now? So it was, um, I, I don't know. I, a lot of people say it. Oh, you have this big bass guitar. No, I don't have a big bass guitar. It's a normal bass guitar. I'm a little bass player. That's how I explain it. But it was natural. It was natural for me. I didn't have to work at it. When I played, it was just like, I've all, it, in fact, real quick story. In the old days in the in the family holiday when we were growing up, five kids, you don't take planes too expensive. So we did a lot of driving vacations. And on these driving vacations, big station wagon full of five kids and my mom and dad, we would have sing-alongs, of course. And siblings go into their natural harmonies. You just do. You just know your note. You're going to it. And I always remember my dad would be in the front driving. The, he would be driving the car. And he'd be going, boom, ba-doom, 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 doom. And I said, oh, that's the best part there is. <laughs> so I always was, I always was leaning that way anyway. You mentioned the pleasure seekers. Would the, would the pleasure seekers have been your first paid gig? And if so, what was it like to get your first few dollars for the first day? My first, gig? my first paid gig was when I was eight, and my dad took me to his Sunday gig at the Oakland Hills Country Club. He was supposed to take me to church, and he dropped me. He he took me to his gig instead. My mother never knew. She's up there listening now. And he said to me, "Do you want to play a song with me on the bongos?" I said, "Yes." So he let me sit in front of the trio and I played Mac the Knife and he gave me 25 cents. Probably wow. go away. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you, you talk about singing with your, your your family in the car, but did you know, obviously you went on to have a, like a career as a singer, but did you know even back then that you had a the voice or a voice? When you're one of five kids, it's interesting that you use that expression. When you're one of five kids, you speak spend your early years trying to find your voice, your voice, because you're one of five. It's always, oh, one of the kids. No, I didn't want to be one of the kids. So I tried to find my voice. Um, I was always different and I didn't know why, but I just didn't fit in anywhere. It's been my whole life. I'm still the same now. And whenever we did family shows, which we did all the time, Christmas, birthday, Thanksgiving, whatever it was, and everybody would get up and do either a sketch or a song or play something on an instrument or everybody had their, their space. And when I got up to do whatever I was going to do, no matter what I did, the whole room stopped. And in my little childish brain, I went, Oh, I can entertain people. I couldn't have articulated it for you, but I knew I had something that stopped the room. So that stayed in my brain as I was growing up. And then the first gig with the Pleasure Seekers, I was 14. And we knew three songs, same three chords. And uh, I remember going up onto the stage at the local dance hall. He put us on. And I put on my bass. And we went to do the first song. And I swear to God, in my head, in my head, I said to myself, I'm home. <laughs> So it's always been this way with me. I'm a very instinctual person. 
and I trust my instincts. So yeah, this is going to be my path. 59 years now I've been doing this. Susie, when, when you decided that you were going to go to the UK and pursue a career in the UK, did your parents back this decision? Well, because they had four daughters in the band and a son who was a very successful pianist, um, television star at the age of 14 all around America, uh, they didn't find it unusual. They didn't dissuade us. My dad bought us, uh, well, put down the money first for our van, our equipment. We rehearsed in the garage. Um, no, he was encouraging. It's unusual for people to be able to say this. I mean, most of the time they have to fight the parents. My parents were 100% for it. Maybe that's why I treat it so much like a profession. And why the UK, Susie? What made you go to relocate there? I was in the bands from 64 to 1970. First Pleasure Seekers, where I was the main front person. Um, and then I turned into Cradle for about 18 months, which was more of a serious band. And we started to jam more and write our own material. And my little sister joined the band then, and she took over singing. And I was pushed to the back. So I didn't like that so much, but but it made me a really excellent bass player because I didn't have to do both. I was just playing bass. So it was great. Mickey saw this band and I only did two songs and he offered me a solo contract, Mickey Most. And I could either stay in New York. I, I had two offers in one week, one from Electra Records, strange, to go solo. And he would make me into the next Janis Joplin, put me in New York with a male band. Mickey Most came the same week to record at Motown with Jeff Beck and Cozy Powell. And Mickey said, I'm going to take you to England, make a record, get a male band around you, and make you to the first Susie Quattro. So guess which offer I took? <laughs> the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Uh, is it true that one of your first tours of the UK was with Slade and, of course, the Irish legends, Tim Lizzie? Yeah, before I had success, uh, I was here for about nearly 18 months then i had my first number one but uh about a year and a bit recording with mickey nothing was happening i said i need a band I'm going crazy here you know I, i'm used to a band and gigging and so i formed my band we went on the college circuit and then mickey asked his friend Chaz chandler who managed slade who was the original bass player from the animals who mickey produced he asked him if he would put me on the show the first national slade tour and he said, no problem. So I had the beginning of the show. I had 15, 20 minutes to do all my own original songs with my band. Fantastic. And th this is what made the band have its sound. All my own songs. So we developed our style and sound from that tour. Absolutely. And develop a style you did. You had a smash hit with Can to Can reaching number one in the UK and around Europe. What was that like? What was that feeling like? It's like no other. I always say you never forget your first time. You don't. Um, sorry for being cheeky. I remember Mickey calling me. We were in a, me and my ex-husband, he was my guitar player. We were in a, in a flat and the phone rang at about 830 in the morning. And the landlady who lived downstairs called me down. I came down and Mickey, he dragged it out. He said, Susie, it's 830 in the morning. I said, yes. He said, you have a, a gig tonight in Bristol. Yes, Mickey. He said, well, you may have to fly. And I didn't like to fly. Then I said, why? And he dragged it. He said, well, because you might be doing top of the pops because you might be number one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I screamed. That was fantastic. And I, I think I went through a little bit of an ego trip for about 
24 hours, 48 maximum, where you just, you're flying on that, that you're number one, you know? And then, then I remember waking up, looking in the mirror and looking at me and saying, you jerk, you're exactly the same person. <laughs> and I went to have coffee with my ex at the kitchen table. And he went, he's very smart. He went, welcome back, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you have to go through that. Yeah, go through it and let it wash over when you go through the other side. Yeah, I had my ego trip. I don't need it again. I never <laughs> need to book that flight again. Done. <laughs> Susie, did you know you had something special when you recorded the song, Can the Can? 100%. There are little hairs on the back of your neck stirred up. Um, even when we were putting it together in the rehearsal room, all the people in the band were putting their bits in, you know, the drum, with that, and then he put his little, and I put my little bass solo. Um, Yes, when we were recording it. I remember the moment when it happened. The song was pretty much recorded. And Mike said to me, I need something right here. I don't know what, but I need something right here. And I said, excuse me. And I went into the recording studio and I did my scream. <laughs> and I've been doing my scream since I've been 14. Okay. And it's a great scream. I don't know where it comes from, but it's a God-given scream. And in fact, just to digress... We were recording, um, Katie and I, we were doing Good Kind of Hot from Face to Face in the studio, okay? She's in the booth. I'm in the booth. We're looking at each other. We're singing, singing our vocals. And I did a scream. We're recording at Rack. It's expensive. She stops the tape. She says, Susie, I said, what? She said, can I just ask you, how many screams do you do a year? I said, and we stopped the session to work out a number. <laughs> Apparently, it's a good scream. Susie, what challenges did you face as a young artist trying to establish yourself, establish yourself even in a male-dominated rock scene? Everybody asks me this, and I have to be honest. I I don't do gender. I never have. Uh, I've never thought it was strange for me playing the bass. I've never thought I had to explain myself. I know I'm a female bass player, but it doesn't compute. So my theory is that because I give that feeling off to people, that they don't question me back. So I didn't notice it. I was with guys. I was one of the guys saying that, though, one of the guys. I could, you know, drink a beer at the bar with the guys, be one of the guys. But there's a little invisible line that I always had from my mother, good Catholic lady. And if anybody crosses that line, they're singing soprano for the rest of their life. That's how the screen kicked in. There you go. <laughs> Susie, your image of the leather-clad rocker, even for the 70s, definitely broke barriers for women in the music industry. Were you instrumental in developing that look? Well, that's going to go to my grave. I mean, that's not even a question. There, there had been female musicians before me, but nobody had been successful like me. So what I take to my grave is that I was the first female rock and roll instrumentalist singer running a band to have success. That's what I take to my grave. And when I watched my, and, and I have to be honest, I didn't know 
what I was doing. I don't pretend I did. I was simply stubbornly being myself. And it wasn't until 2019 when I was watching the um, Suzy Q documentary at the Regents Theater. I was booked in for the Q&A and I snuck in to watch it with the audience. I wanted to see it. So I was standing in the corner and I watched it for the first time in its entirety on the big screen with an audience. So you really get the feel of the documentary. And woman after woman, Debbie Harry, Chrissy Hind, Katie Tunstall, Kathy Valentine, Tina Raymond, Cherie Curry, Joan Jett, all of them at different times in this documentary came on and said basically the same thing. They all said we would not have done, even dared to do what we did, or even thought it was possible, of picking up an instrument, being in a band, had Susie Quattro not done it first. And I watched this documentary, and then I started to cry. And I had to go for a Q&A. It really affected me. I honestly can be very open about it and say that at the age of 69, watching that on the screen, I went, oh, my feeling was, I did that. I didn't know I did that. I didn't know. And the punchline of that story is, it really affected me. Now I know it. Now I can say it when we talk. Um, I called my friend Cherie Curry, who used to be the lead singer from The Runaway. She's a good friend of mine now. Called her in California. And I told her the story of the documentary and the and the premiere. And I said, Cherie, I'll never forget the Cherie. I just realized something. She said, what? I said, by me doing what I did, I gave permission to women all over the world to be different. And there was this transatlantic pause and she went and you just got that <laughs> well in, in fact, i didn't get it yeah you, you, what you've done there is you've actually answered one of the questions that we had for later on but i'm going to ask you now i'm going to bring it back a bit how does the the term role model sit with you because that's what you are i mean we had we listed a couple of names down below but you've called them all out there and and, and they do see you as and rightly so they you know they call it out in the documentary and you are a role model. That's it. It's a hard question to answer because how you see yourself is always different to what other people see you. That goes without saying. But saying that, once that realization came to me, I now I'm humbled by it. And I just, wow. While I was watching the film, I kept going to myself, standing there on the side of the cinema. I did that. I did that. I did that. I didn't know. I didn't know at the beginning. Um, all I was aware of in the beginning was that because it took me so long to find my voice, that once I found my voice, nobody was going to take it away from me. Wow. So this was my attitude. I found out who I am and nobody will stop me, you know? So I guess I was just kind of with, with those blinders on. I'm A and I'm going to B. And I didn't really think about it, what it meant or why I was doing it or who I was or what I was. I mean, really, I kicked down the door because if I'm being very honest, I did not see the door. Yeah. And so it's, it's incredible that for a lot of the singers that came after you, you were that Elvis moment yourself that you had. They were looking at you and thinking, oh, you're going to do that. And how humbling is that? Unbelievable. I can't yeah. believe it sometimes. That is, well, I remember meeting up with um. Tina Weymouth somewhere that from Talking Heads. And we were at a party somewhere or whatever this years after I started. Um, in fact, they had only had a few hits themselves. So she was pretty new on the scene. And I made a sort of 
self-mocking one-liner joke against myself. Just, you know, how you do in conversation. And she went, don't you know how important you were? I went, really? I mean, I, I didn't mean it any other way than just having fun, but she was there. You know, if you watch the documentary, yeah. you see, but we have, I didn't, I didn't know, but thank God. And, and I say it this way now that I'm older, I'm 73 now. I think if it had fallen to anybody else, but me, it wouldn't have worked how it worked. I think it had to be on the shoulders of somebody who was completely unaware of what they were doing. Otherwise it's manufactured. I was not manufactured. So this is my you know, in intellectualizing it, but I think I'm correct. I had no idea. And that's why it worked. Yeah. Uh, Susie, I want to just take you back a little bit back to your initial success. The hits after Candid Candid, more hits followed 48 Crash, Daytona Demon, Devilgate Drive. And you seem to be at that time, you mentioned Top of the Pops, but every music TV show, every music magazine, were you enjoying the success? The success? I always enjoyed everything I did. Um, I was aware, though, when it first begins and that rat race begins, it's a rat race. Um, no, I didn't mind it, but you're aware that you're on a treadmill of a kind, you know, and I'm now enjoying it more, obviously, because you have nothing to prove anymore. You, you know, you've made your name. But back then, there was pressure. I had to be Susie Quattro. I had to make sure I delivered the goods and well, I still feel the same pressure now, actually. Who am I kidding? I haven't changed at all. I'm still at the reference. <laughs> I just corrected myself. What a load of crap. I'm exactly the same <laughs> with my face I've always been. I was trying to be grown up and mature, which I'm not. <laughs> Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle hums. Susie, I have to ask you about happy days. Growing up in, in Ireland in the 80s, my image of America was that they were still in the 50s and everything was happy days. And what was that like working on that show? I think you'd done three seasons, was it? That show was, it was a decision I took. Um, I don't, I always knew I could act. Let's put it that way. I just knew I could. It's the same kind of instinct anyway. You're communicating. Uh, I was in Japan on tour. I did a tour there every year. And I got a call from my publicity guy in America. And he said, this is a show called Happy Days. I didn't know it. Uh, and they want you to audition. And believe me, you want to do this. So I went over. I made a decision. Went over. Auditioned got the part it turned into three seasons i got the second most fan mail after fonzie unbelievable and and i have to say i'm still good friends we email all the time ronnie and henry and me so i made two good friends from that show but it was a good decision um it felt natural i even said to ron one time we were talking and i said I i'm gonna pick your pick your bones i said did it ever feel when i joined the show that I was a new actress and new to the show. He said, no, neither. You slid right in like you were always there. And I said, oh, wow. And then he said to me, don't ever take acting lessons. And I thought he was insulting me. I said, why? He said, because what you do, you do natural. And acting lessons would mess it up. 
So what a compliment. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I'm glad I did that show. Great time. Great, great program. Well, one, please, one of the classic series of all time. Yeah. Please do tell Ron and Henry that Derek and Kieran and Mark said <laughs> hello. Uh, good people. I uh, mean, yeah. With Ronnie, you know, he I asked him for, well, both of them gave me quotes for my autobiography unzipped. And Henry's, and they both gave me stuff since. But I asked Ronnie for a quote. <laughs> he wrote me back three three pages. I said, Ron, I wanted a quote. <laughs> you know, that's a typical director, isn't it? Three pages, giving me detail. He's doing the scenes and the shots. I said, no, I want a quote. And he, said, he said, I wanted to get it all correct. I said, well, you're giving me a book, you know. <laughs> question we got asked one of our listeners the song uh stumbling in is you out with chris norman it looked like there was there was great chemistry between the two of you what was that like to work on i've always liked chris's voice um we were it's a strange thing it just happened we were at a big award ceremony in cologne germany and there was a private party afterwards and we all went all the stars on the show went so it's all the stars in the audience and a band on stage having a drink after the show. And I asked everybody, I don't want to name names, but lots of famous people. I said, hey, let's go up and do a song. No, let's go up and do a song. No. Finally, I said to Chris, come up. I didn't ask. I said, come with me. And we went on stage and we jammed. And Mike Chapman happened to be in the audience. And he said, oh, and he liked what he saw. He liked what he heard. And he said, I want to do a, a duet with you too. And he went away that night and wrote the chorus for Stumbling In. Wow. Wow. And there was, and he did it cleverly because he, my band played, including me on the, on the track. And he said, now I want to recreate what I saw that night in that club. So he put Chris here and me here, and we sang the song live to each other on the microphones facing each other. And that's why you get that real intimacy, that real feel. So that was a good way to do it. So we weren't doing it remotely. We were doing it together. In the 80s, Susie, you took a small break to start your family, look after your family, but you began touring again. Is the stage a happy place? The stage is where I'm most comfortable. I have to say that. Um, I've been touring now for 59 years. I go out there and it's like, well, first of all, before I go out, just before I cross the footlights, I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, I hope they like me. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Then I take that step out. And then I'm home. I do believe that the big guy upstairs put me on this earth to entertain people. And that's what I would do until I can't do it anymore. You also appeared in the West End. Annie, get your gun. Was there any trepidation uh, you know, in doing a, a musical rather than your own show? Um, again, my upbringing stood me in good stead. You know, uh, I was... Um, I, I, I was always into musical so it wasn't a big jump for me i knew i knew i could do that but it was a uh, um how can you say it rock and roll is in your face you know punch in the face theater 
you have the same energy, but you contain it. And you have to let it out bit by bit by bit. And you have a script. It's a script. Even though there's a script in your live shows too, what you have to do is be aware of well, how I made it fresh every night was, so I did it for a year. I had my ears and my eyes on the audience feeling what they wanted to feel from the character, Annie Oakley. So some nights they wanted the, the ballsy Annie Oakley. Sometimes they wanted the cute, innocent one. And whatever they wanted, I played to that. So I, and same way I do my audience when I'm doing my rock and roll. I, I feel what they want from me, and that's what they get that night. I mean, you continue to tour, perform, even writing your own musical and starring in your own musical, and even starting your own radio show, which you still do to this day. Does Susie Quattro ever take a break? And if you do, what do you like to do in your downtime? Do I ever take a break? Um, I have my quiet moments. Usually, I'm, unless I'm doing gigs, that's a different thing. But when I'm not gigging in my home, I have a cutoff point at about six-ish, seven-ish. And then I don't want to do any business. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want any problems. And I relax because you have to balance it, you know. And I'm so, I'm so busy, busy, busy all the time. That's my character. So then I go quiet. I'll have a glass of wine. I'll get a movie for the night and I'm finished for the day. So I do try to balance. I've been born with this excessive energy that I can't seem to get rid of. I'm 73 and I'm still doing two hour shows, solo shows. My mother used to say to me when I was a kid, why don't you go chase yourself around the block? <laughs> I tried to do it actually. I myself, that was the problem. <laughs> Your, your, your energy is just unbelievable, Susie. I know. Even, I told somebody here. today, wherever I was, I was somewhere, oh, in the bank, somewhere, talking to somebody, and just, yep, 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 yep. And I went, uh, I'm 73. They went, what? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want you don't want their reaction. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's you want them to go, oh, you know, otherwise you go, hey, did you hear what I said? You know? <laughs> Susie, you mentioned your autobiography, Unzipped, and the book has an amazing shot of you on the front cover. What was the decision process for you to, to sit back and say, okay, I'm going to write an autobiography? I was the Elvis fan for my whole life, and when I saw the comeback special, I decided Leathers for me. And it went on from there. You know, Then we did the first album, and I mean, Mickey signed me after hearing me sing Jailhouse Rock. Then we went and made the first album. And I covered all shook up, you know, and we can the can. And when can the can was recorded, Mickey said to me, okay. And he said, this is going to be a number one. And what do you want to wear? And I said, leather. And he said, no. And I said, yes. And he said, no. And I said, yes, of course I got my way. It's, it's a no brainer. Um, and then when he said, okay, you can wear leather, he went quiet for a minute. And he said, what about a jumpsuit? And me being childish and naive like I am. I could be very six-year-old. And I didn't know that it was going to be sexy whatsoever. And I just thought that it was a sensible idea that I jump around. I'm very energetic. So the jumpsuit would stay in place. And I said, great idea, Mickey. Great. So we went and did the first session and hand the camera was playing on the speaker. Gerard Mankiewicz, very famous photographer. He's there. The band is around me. I'm in my jumpsuit. Records playing, and I always it was a pivotal moment. That's the picture you're talking about. He's got the camera and he went, okay. 
Now give me that Susie Quattro look. And I did that pose. And until that moment in time, I didn't know I had a Susie Quattro look. So that picture, this is why it's such a powerful picture, that happened. I did that. And you can see it happening in that photo. It's an iconic photo, you know. But then when we got the pictures back be, be, after we, we took that photo and Mickey was looking at all the, what did you call them? The the sheet. Uh, there's a word for it. Can't think of it. Negatively. That's it. And you're looking with the camera and, you, you know, you got the magnifying glass and you're looking to contact sheet and you're looking to find the picture. And he's looking through each one. Mickey was meticulous. He wanted the best picture. And he's going, da, 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 da. oh, Susie, look at this one. Here's the one of you. And he put it on the, so it's blown up. And I went, oh, <laughs> I didn't know. I went, oh, my God. What is my mother going to say? <laughs> well, I honestly, I'm glad. I did not know. You said I it didn't was sexy. Realize, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said it was sexy because it's, it's an unbelievable picture. Yes, but you know what? And don't tell me, I'm, I'm going to be surprised if you don't agree. I've talked to a lot of other people in the business, big stars. We've talked about this, blah, blah, blah. And nobody's ever told me ever that I look like I was trying to be sexy. Yes, it's natural. And that seems to be a key, Susie. You're, you're spontaneous. All the stories you've been telling us have happened just through instinct. You know, you, 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 and that's what makes it real. That is what makes it real. And I am the kind of person that I, I do have great instincts and I do trust my instincts. So when something comes at me, I go for it. That's all. I just go for it. I worry about it later. <laughs> and Susie, you do go for like you, you read the hurricane. You released an album with your son, No Control. Like, what was that like recording an, an album with your son? Was that a surreal experience? Unbelievable. Because it started with him just wanting to do a few demos with me. He'd been in, in music since he was 14 and he really wanted to be in it, you know. And I kept letting him have his dream, letting him have his dream, you know, encouraging him. He had bands, da 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 da. da. And finally, he said, Mom, I always remember, he said, Mom, I need to write with you. Okay. That's a strong statement to make. So we did three songs together. We went in to make the demos. And we were there in the studio. And I went to the engineer and Richard. We're making an album. And they both said, yeah. So it was quite a moment. I did not know that Richard was so talented as what he is. That was a surprise to me. He kind of kept it hidden, I think, until he was finally fully grown. And when he felt confident enough to come to his mother and say, I need to write with you now, that's when he was ready. And I, I recognize that it's great working with him. Very talented boy. You know, he did two albums with me so far, No Control and the Devil in Me. Plus, he produced Uncovered, which is my EP of covers. And he produced Face to Face by, with KT Tunstall, by KT's request. So I didn't push him. She asked for him. Very, very acclaimed stuff, you know. Well, I just wanted to pull you back to the autobiography. Um, I just wanted to, to get your, your thoughts on what was the decision process for, for putting your, your life story on paper and, and how you felt about kind of sharing some of those stories. I had started quite a few years earlier, and it was going to be called Confessions of a Survivor. It just got shelved. I don't know why. And then... A little bit later, I maybe 10, 15 years later, I started to read what I'd written. I kept it in a file. And then I thought, now's the time. Now's the time to do it. It just felt right to do it. And I insisted that not even one punctuation mark was corrected. Everything was mine from beginning 
to end. I wanted my story to be told. And I didn't want to leave anything out. Same as my documentary. Same as in my autobiography. There are cringe moments. There are embarrassing moments. There are moments where you, you're writing it. And you go, oh, my God. But you have to tell the truth. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it, you know. So I'm proud of Unzipped and I'm proud of the documentary. They say exactly what went on in my life, be it uncomfortable or not. And you've talked to me long enough now. We've been on the phone for nearly an hour. I'm a very open person. And one thing I've never learned, and I hope I never learn it, is the art of bullshit. I don't know it. Straightforward. Well, both the documentary and the, the book are both brilliant. And um, Susie, how has your approach to music and performance evolved over the years? When you first have success, you are the image, which is you, but you are that. So you really are kind of forced to be that all the time. Then as you go further down the road, you know, you branch out to happy days, do musicals, radio, but da, da, da. and then you can still be this, but you can also show the other sides of your character. So now... Now, when I do my two-hour show with the interval, I'm so happy because I can have my sense of humor. I can tell you this embarrassing stories. I can show you some film clips. I can play my five-and-a-half-minute-long bass solo, which will blow your mind. I can play the piano. I can go and play the drums. I can give you all your hits. I can do Can the Can. I can do Shine a Light. So for me, it's the ideal show that I can now, I don't like being boxed in, never have done. And now I'm not boxed in at all. And Susie, can we ask you to give us more detail about the album, the brilliant album, Face to Face, with the great, great Katie Tunstall? How did that work out? How did that duo happen? It was kind of, again, like everything in my life. Um, I used to be asked, who would you like to work with in today's era? And I always used to mention her and Melissa Etheridge, two people I wanted to work with. Um, I was a fan of hers. I didn't know she was a fan of mine. We did an Elvis extravaganza, BBC Hyde Park. I was playing with the TCB band. She had a slot. We met. Um, then I was watching the rough cut of Suzy Q, the documentary, and to approve it. And there's KT. I went, oh, oh, she's a fan of mine. I didn't know this. So the guy that did the footage for Shine a Light, been my fan forever, and her since she began. He said to me, would you like me to engineer a meeting? I said, oh, please. So she called me. And she invited me down to London where she was recording. We had lunch. We talked. We hit it off. And then she said to me, I've got this track. I've got a riff. Would you like to write it with me? I want to move out of my comfort zone. I said, absolutely. So she sent me the riff. So we wrote this remotely. That's overload. Then I sent her the riff and the chorus for Good Kind of Hot. We wrote that remotely. And then I, I knew something was going on. She did too. And I just said, why don't you come to the house? Stay overnight for a few days. Let's explore what this is. So we went into my front room 
She stayed three or four nights. You took our shoes off, bass guitar, guitar, writing paraphernalia, little recording machine, lyric sheets, blah, 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 blah. And we started. And we connected like two soulmates, I tell you. You can hear it on the album. I don't even need to sell it. Um, we would talk, 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 and then a song would present itself because we would talk about a particular subject. We go into it deep, 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 and then all of a sudden, there's a song. I pick up my bass. She picks up her guitar. There's a song. Magic. It's a magic relationship and a magical album, I have to say. Would there be any plans to tour that album, Susie? Or? Well, if if it comes to that, neither one of us are against it, you know. Um, we're good friends. We've become emotionally naked and comfortable with each other. So, yeah, she's a good girl. Love her to pieces. Okay. So other than that, Susie, what's next? What's on the horizon for you? I have to say we're now celebrating 50 years of Can the Pan being number one. So I'm doing four big shows. There was one in Cardiff, uh, but concrete problems anyway. Four big shows in November to celebrate 50 years. 13th, Brighton Dome. November 15th, London Palladium. 16th, Wolverhampton, the Halls of the Civic. 18th, Manchester Bridgewater Hall. And I'm now writing songs for our next solo album. So there's no stopping you, Susie Quattro. And there won't be. Great. Right, Susie. It's Last Orders in the Last Chance Saloon. You're down to your last dollar, pound, euro, wherever you are. There's a jukebox in the corner. It's one song, one dollar, one pound, one euro. What does Susie Quattro play out to? Oh, my God. Okay. Who I am. Chuck Berry, Sweet Little Rock and Roller. Okay. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> Susie, that is the song that we're going to play this interview, interview out on. So from myself, Derek, Kieran, and our producer, Mark, the whole Let Christy Take It team. Susie Quattro, you've made us uh, very, very happy. I have to say that. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you very, very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.